Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 23rd, 2020, the Nobody Likes Him edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Joining me, of course, is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York City. Hello, John Dickerson. Hello. Nice. We've extended the syllables. Now the show's over because just those two syllables, (laughs) my John and your hello, took an hour. And also joining us. That was a very Winnie the Pooh, like from a tunnel. It was. Oh, no. He says, hello. It it was very Winnie the Pooh. It was. He's a wedge bear in great tightness, that John Dickerson. That (laughs) is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and also of Yale, who is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. On today's GabFest, the impeachment trial is underway. What's happening? Is it shaping opinion? What have we learned? Then Iowa looms. The surge of Bernie Sanders. Hillary Clinton's shots at Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders shots at Joe Biden. What is happening in the Democratic race? And then the extraordinary spectacle of the ruler of Saudi Arabia hacking Jeff Bezos's phone, feeding dirt to the National Enquirer. The MBS Bezos situation. It's just it's unbelievable it is you couldn't you literally could not write that plus of course we will have cocktail chatter the impeachment trial is underway fully underway in the senate it will be rushed although a bit less rushed than mitch mcconnell and president trump wanted it to be so john we're taping on thursday morning uh most of the trial has not happened yet but some of it has what what are our key developments over the first couple of days well i i don't i hard to know what the key one is i think the <clears throat> The biggest thing to me is that the the impeachment managers are getting the chance to make an uninterrupted case, um, with, which lays out all of the evidence. And uh, having watched uh, watched most of it on uh, Wednesday, I was surprised that for somebody who's been watching this pretty darn closely, that there were things I didn't know about and that, or that I, that I'd forgotten about, but then in a new context, and that new context is not only the narrative laid out, but then also uh, subsequent developments that have happened since the first time I learned about something. There, there is a mountain of evidence. Uh, whether people think it rises to the level of impeachment in the abstract is a question, and whether they think it rises to the level of impeachment uh, when an election is so clear and offers an, another remedy, and we can talk about about that split. The amount of evidence and the number of different people who all got this impression that the president was uh, was holding up a White House visit and holding up money to Ukraine for the purposes of making the uh, Ukrainian president make an announcement about an investigation. Not so much that the investigation itself was important, but the announcement announcement was important as a way to hurt his chief rival. Um, I was I was hit afresh by the just the tonnage of the information. So that was my uh, big takeaway yesterday. 
Right. So, Emily, I guess the one of the strongest points that Adam Schiff, the lead manager, has been making is that the necess- that impeachment is necessary because the president is using his power to cheat in the election. And that the therefore, the election is not itself a remedy if the election is not a legitimate election. Election can't be a remedy if you are cheating to win it. And if cheating is the centerpiece of your foreign policy, were you persuaded by that that point? I think it's a really strong way of putting the case. Uh, if I was trying to rebut it, I would say, well, that's true, except that in this case, the president didn't succeed in stealing the election in that this effort to get dirt from the Ukrainians about Joe Biden didn't materialize. They didn't launch an investigation. They didn't make that public announcement. There are two problems, of course, with that rebuttal. One is that do you really want to let um, an abusing power president, if you think that's what happened, off the hook? Because this it seems like a serious violation if you accept Schiff's premise. And the second problem is that actually this probably has been pretty damaging to Joe Biden because we've been paying so much attention to it. And he and his son have been very much caught up in the maelstrom. And you could argue that perhaps it's been just as damaging and um, kind of pulled Biden down with Trump, which is like one of Trump's um, greatest tricks. So I don't find – yeah, I I think that that is a kind of problematic response. Can I I actually add to that, which is that we also don't know – whether they have tried and perhaps have succeeded with this kind of chicanery in other places. It may be that there is some trap that's been laid for Elizabeth Warren or a trap that's been laid for Bernie Sanders or a different trap that's been laid for Joe Biden with the Saudi government. We've seen this week again how incredibly dangerous and corrupt that government is or with the Russian government or with the Chinese government. Who knows if they are doing this and and thought they could get away with it. Uh, what other things they might have tried to do and have gotten away with, but we just don't know because because they have successfully covered it up in a way that they have desperately tried to successful to cover up. Can I? What's happened here, John? Do you are there particular details that jumped out at you that you felt like hearing the whole tapestry um, made more vivid for you? Like, are there particular facts or was it just more this feeling of hearing all the evidence at once? The hearing all this evidence at once, because you have 20 different people, you know, including, I mean, OMB, William Taylor, John Bolton, Marie Ivanovich, the former Ukrainian ambassador, Fiona Hill in the NSC, George Kent. I mean, all these different people who were not in league with each other, who got the same impression. And they got the same impression, which, uh, which according to the president's defense, was a misimpression. And then there were some people who were just in the dark about why this money was being held up in the first place. What strikes me there is we know one thing about Donald Trump. When he wants something and cares about something, let's say his border wall, no one in the administration can mistake his intent. No, They may tell him he can't do a thing or two, but no one is confused about what he wants to do. And yet in this case, they were confused either they didn't know why this was money was being held up or they had a completely different reason they they misunderstood him. For that many number of people to misunderstand this president is an aberration from his normal way of working and therefore suggests that his proffered explanation for what he was doing uh, is not likely to be consistent with the facts. So that's the kind of big, huge overall uh, thing that comes across. But one little thing uh, in answer to your question, Emily, was when uh, Kurt Volker was 
working with the Ukrainian president's aides to tailor the statement that he would make that would release uh, or that would set the conditions for his White House visit. In the series of text exchanges, the Ukrainians send back a statement that says, you know, we'll investigate. I don't have the language in front of me. And Volker says, no, you have to insert this about CrowdStrike and Burisma or the conspiracy theory related to the 2016 campaign and Burisma. In other words, Crucial to the announcement was announcing that Burisma was being um, investigated. Then you have Lev Parnas's handwritten notes, which came out last week. And what's crucial in his handwritten notes? That there be this announcement. An announcement, the word announcement, of course, is key because President Zelensky promised on the phone that he would do the investigation. But what's politically damaging, so the theory of the, the impeachment manager's case goes, what's politically damaging to Joe Biden is that it gets announced, not that it actually happens. And so when you see the editing of the, the uh, announcement that the Ukrainian president was supposed to make, it kind of just brings it into high relief, just that one little piece, which then is echoed and re-echoed by all these other people who have testified that this was the intent of the policy. And so that was just one way in which the small thing uh, made the larger case. Emily, one of the centerpieces of the defense, of President Trump's defense, is a claim that that there is no crime, and absent a crime, and not just a crime, a crime that actually hurts the public, Impeachment is not uh, a legitimate exercise of congressional authority. That seems far-fetched, but I wondered what you, as our as our resident uh, legal scholar, make of it. Yeah, I mean, as Frank Bowman, who's a law professor, has written a lot about impeachment, said, it's constitutional nonsense. It's really um, been bothering me this week, and and I think here's the reason why. So I feel like there. Are, Surely more, but at least three ways that the president's team could be responding to this. They could be trying to question the facts. We're not seeing a lot of that. I mean, they haven't mounted their defense, but that wasn't really their approach in their brief. They could say, okay, this isn't great, but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. Or they could say, this isn't an impeachable offense and Congress has no right to investigate. And that's the attack they've taken. And it's really disturbing as a matter of setting precedent. I mean, it, first of all, I think is wrong as a matter of constitutional history and separation of power. But it also strikes at the heart of Congress's power to try to hold the president accountable. Yep. And I just find it so dismaying to hear this argument coming um, from some people who are well-known lawyers. I mean, foremost among them, Alan Dershowitz, um, from Harvard Law School, who I feel like is changing the channel from a bad moment with Jeff with his associations with Jeffrey Epstein, and also just like dying to be in the limelight. And he is making an argument that contradicts the stance that he himself took during the Clinton impeachment. It's an argument that basically every single worth every single legal expert worth their salt has said this is risible like not just like oh that's interesting and there's another way to think about it but literally all this is one of those cases where all of the history and precedent from the framers forward from before the framers back to the mm -hmm. british is in the other direction and it's in the other direction for a really important reason you know the idea of impeachment is that because um, especially given the Justice Department's stance that the president can't be prosecuted for criminal 
offenses. Congress has to have another way of thinking about his conduct. Like there has to be some check that we have beyond elections, or at least that's the way the Constitution is framed. And so if you're going to take away abuse of power, which of course was part of the Nixon and the Clinton impeachment cases, you're really landing in this place in which you risk the president being totally unaccountable. And if you read the debates in the summer of 1787, separate apart from the specifics on impeachment, which are a little mushy, they are obsessed to the point of really being mind-bendingly boring about the balancing of power. And every time a tiny little grain of sand gets put uh, on the congressional side, there's a huge long discussion about balancing that with more powers on the presidential side or in the executive side and vice versa. The idea that people who were on such a hair trigger and so fearful that when you handed over power to an executive, which would have been unheard of 10 years earlier when they were fighting a war against one, that they would think abuse of power was not a part of of this remedy is really strikes just from that perspective um, really seems way out of bounds. I'm reminded we I've talked about this on the show before, uh, and I credit Matt Iglesias, who's the person who pointed me to it originally. This, this Yale political scientist, now dead, Juan Linz, who wrote about why the American form of government is so unstable. And that if you look around the world, governments that are constructed like the United States do not survive. And the, be, the reason fundamentally is that you have these two different sources of popular legitimacy. One source is the election of the president and the popular, well, I mean, we can even <laughs> make it separate point, which is that you don't even necessarily have popular legitimacy with the president if you have a non-majority election, but whatever. And then you have a, a Congress, in fact, a divided Congress, where you have two different sources of legitimacy, a popular, popularly elected Senate, a popularly elected House, each of which could have different majorities. And you end up with this fundamentally unstable situation where each of them has power and each of them can, cl- can claim a form of legitimacy. And for much of the United States' history, this has been okay, and they have balanced each other out you know, for a variety of lucky reasons, except for the period during the Civil War, it managed to work. It is no longer working because the legislature has shown itself willing to cede to the executive mammoth amounts of power and to not hold the executive accountable. And this can be laid 150%, basically, maybe 94% at the feet of the Republicans in Congress who have decline to act in the way that they are supposed to act. I, I, of course, the president is a is a malfeasant and he's a villainous person who has committed crimes both against the state in the form of high crimes and he's probably committed regular crimes too. But it is unconscionable what the Republicans in the legislature are doing. And, and they are the ones who are going to have to live in the shame of this uh, when we end up with a with an executive dictatorship, which is where we're headed in this country. We are going to an executive dictatorship. We basically have an executive dictatorship because we have an executive who is not responsive. And this impeachment is a last effort to hold the executive accountable, but it is not going to work because the Republicans in the Senate so, will not well, support it. Yeah, sure. They have a the the majority in the Senate in particular has a responsibility to I mean it, it a self-respecting member of the legislature should laugh at the idea that abuse of power cannot be checked by Congress, just as a kind of self-respecting member of the club, regardless of the specifics of the case, because it's a self-denuding argument. It basically means Congress has no has no power in a system in which the powers are supposed to be shared. 
separate and apart from what faces Republicans now to stand up for their uh, for their Congress, the ceding of power to the executive um, has been a thoroughly bipartisan thing. A there were lots of examples of of the the Obama administration doing it. Obviously, whenever you talk about examples, you have to talk about different in kind. So this is. You know, uh, putting a lot of power in the administrative state as a part of the Affordable Care Act is a different thing than what is alleged here on Ukraine. Uh, and and so I'm not suggesting that they are equivalent, but the seeding of power has happened over generations. And in fact, one of the arguments for Elizabeth Warren's, Warren's candidacy is given that so much power has been seeded, and we can talk about this in our next topic, but given that so much power has been ceded to the executive, hire somebody in that job who knows exactly how to work that system. Forget about trying to build bipartisan consensus in Congress. It's broken. We need to work the system with its administrative levers as best as possible, maybe even expand those powers to get what we want, which may be somebody's preferred argument, but just from a perspective of balance of powers would only make the balance of powers more unequal than it is today and and exacerbate the problem I don't think that's a I don't I'm not sure that's a fair characterization of what Warren the case for Warren is I think there's a huge component of political reform as part of that there's an idea which yeah, is that th- this will be accompanied by a political reform expansion of the franchise uh, you know expansion of adding voting rights and things like that which dealing which, with corruption I mean that's her first bill she says so anyway so here's a question I think that part of the problem we're facing right now goes to polarization, which is, you know, related to this question of um, Congress's power versus the president's, but it's also its own phenomenon. And I wonder if we're in a world in which impeachment is just not going to happen, or at least removal from office won't happen unless we have a president of a different party from both houses of Congress. And in some ways, that's not surprising since you need two thirds um, of the Senate for removal. So you need this like big lift that probably you're not going to have from just one party. But I just wonder in our era of polarization, whether impeachment is just broken, like whether it's one more part of the Constitution, which is not really doing what it's supposed to do anymore. And I think I've been particularly troubled by that watching because this is has the trappings of a trial and a court proceeding, but it's not that. Like, the Senate is not the jury. They're also making the rules for the court. And I I bridle at the idea that it kind of has this veneer of due process and fairness and rules about evidence, when in fact it's this deeply partisan affair in which the Senate, by majority vote, can overrule any kind of ruling that Chief Justice Roberts decides to make. The... The power of impeachment should be incredibly hard to use, incredibly limited, but in a time where you don't have the checks in the conversation we were just talking about, when you don't have the normal checks on power, a lot of the ways in which previous executives have overstepped their bounds, the people who've uh, felt trampled have gone to court, had their case heard, and in and in many cases, the executive has been pinned back. And so the ch- normal checks and balances work, leaving impeachment for the most extraordinary extraordinary case, which, you know, in the way they designed it should be super, super extraordinary. But the problem with the partisan uh, ship that you talked about, Emily, is we also have this situation where voting in, in Senate races is so much more closely tied to the fortunes of your president or the fortunes of national issues. And since presidents are the biggest political actor in national affairs, the health of your president and the boostering of your president 
tends to determine how you're going to do in your Senate race. And so it's not just the left-right, but it's the cohesion and stickiness within a party of the fortunes of individual senators to the future and fortunes of the of the president. When Nixon was elected, half the states that voted for him had Democratic senators. Now that number is closer. Now we have states that basically vote red or vote blue. And that's one of the underlying issues that'll, that really makes it difficult here to ever impeach because of the, that adhesion. Slate Plus members, lucky you, lucky you, lucky you. You get bonus segments on so many Slate podcasts, including ours. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can sign up to become a member today. It's very cheap. It's a new year. Do it. Get a membership for a year. And today's Slate Plus segment for us is going to be very theological, very theological, very grand. We're going to discuss what elements we would put into religions that we were designing. If, if any of the three of us gets the chance to design our own religion in the future, become a godhead, a prophet, what elements are going to be in our religion? This is a an idea proposed by one of Emily's children, I believe. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So much fun drama in the Democratic race or drama. Maybe not fun. Depends who you are. You have Hillary Clinton whacking Bernie Sanders, saying nobody likes him. Sanders' people are whacking Joe Biden as corrupt. The New York Times bafflingly picking both Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar in a reality TV style endorsement that I think did not help either of them. Michael Bloomberg buying every TV ad in America and steadily proving that perhaps you can buy the election. Uh, mm-hmm. And then polling that suggests, you know, speaking of Bernie Sanders, that he is just doing really well. Things are going really well for him. So, John, where do we stand? We're a couple weeks out, two weeks out, three weeks out from, from Iowa. Uh, where do we stand on on the state of the race there and, and the state of the race overall? Quick summary. Well, I think 
The Iowa caucuses conclude, by the way, on the 3rd of February. Where do we stand? It's a good, it's a big, massive jumble. Um, I would like to rise in partial defense of the New York Times as a way of talking about the race and not so much wow. the time. Can't the wait times. to hear this one. Good, let's um, hear it. So, uh, believe me, I've got critiques, but I think p- <laughs> part of what they have put their finger on is an unsettled thing that I that should be pushed more to the front because I think it gets at some of the questions we were just talking about, which is, are we in a time of repair of existing institutions or are we in a time of radical solutions? And by that, I mean both the systemic problems with the machine of American government and also what is the temperament of the, of the nation. Um, I still think that, that after, uh, if, if Donald Trump is to serve just one term, I think the appetite in the country for massive change in the other direction, um, is not going to be super high. There is a symbiotic relationship between the, the desires of the country and what a leader can do. Leaders can't just run up the hill if people aren't going to follow them. And so figuring out that tension explains what kind of candidate you want. Um, and, and the desired outcome you have, there's a lot of steps in between that are required. First is winning the election and then is working through the system um, to get there. And so people often focus on what they want their desired end state, which is important, but it's not the only issue. And what the Times is wrestling with is is both what makes a person electable in this moment, but then also when they get in the job, how can they how can they govern? Is it a world where you can build bipartisan consensus for things? When you talk about Elizabeth Warren's first effort being uh, corruption reform, well, okay, but are Republican senators really going to give her her first victory the minute she gets in office? Um, they'll change the corruption legislation into being about something else. Um, or maybe not. Maybe the country will have roundly defeated Donald Trump and there will be a huge revolt against the Trump idea and Republicans will be rushing to find a safe space and corruption, anti-corruption is like motherhood and apple pie and, and it'll be fine. But how you see those two things determines whether you think that Elizabeth Warren is the person for the day or not. Uh, And I think that's all very much unsettled. And so the Times in making their choice, I think, has a defensible case that these are the thing. This is the way you you need to focus on the frame of the debate first before you can even pick the candidates. Since we haven't settled in the frame, here we go. That is that's weak, man. The the point of an editorial, and it's so clear from the way they constructed it in this whole reality TV spectacle, which they you know, which was a bit much, really, is that they are trying to make it something that draws attention and that matters and that makes a difference. And the only time an editorial endorsement matters is when it is emphatic and well-timed and signals voters that they are, that this is a choice that they can now, it's now safe for them to make or it validates a choice they can make. For the times to do this, to to denude it, to, to strip their own endorsement of any power and any meaning is an act of such stupidity. I can't, I am shocked that the Times did that. I Like, it would have been much better, much better to pick Tom Steyer, much better to pick Tulsi Gabbard than to to, to give this this incredibly, not, not to say that what you just said is wrong, John, it's very well thought out and it is true. There are these frames for looking at the election and ways of thinking about it. The Times, if it's, if it's taking its responsibility of endorsing seriously, should say yes. And given all of that, the frame that is more important, the way that I yeah. that we believe you should look at it, is this this way, and therefore we endorse Amy Klobuchar, or it's that right. way, and therefore we endorse Elizabeth Warren, and make a difference. And instead, they've made this endorsement, which will help neither Warren nor Klobuchar, and embarrasses them, and and 
and it's it's just it's infuriating to see them waste. It's like it's it's like they've been given a they've been given a a, a, a you know a thousand dollar truffle, and and they've and they've like put, <laughs> put it, it in baked beans or something. It's just hey, can stupid. I, can can I uh, modify my view and ascribe to what you just said, which is that okay, say all that stuff I just said, which I all still agree with, but then faced with that view about the frame, if you believe that the frame is still at issue, then you got to pick one. Then you've got a almost almost candidate agnostic. You, if you think that truly is one of the unresolved uh, issues in the campaign, then because you're not just any old analyst, because you're actually opinion writers, and because you have a, a different role in the in the food chain, that that you're that you can't give up the picking f- function of your job. You have to pick, and if you think it's about picking the frame, then fine, pick the frame. But uh, you can't you can't duck your obligation. I I, uh, I, that, I I'm persuaded by part of your case, Emily. Yeah, that's where I come out to. I also think the timing was odd, especially if you're not you're hesitating about making a choice. Like, let it play out a little longer. Let's see how they do in some of these primaries. Mm. Then you can take that into account. So, Emily. One of the other things that happened this week was that Hillary Clinton took a shot at Bernie Sanders. I guess she'd taken it a little while ago, but she stood by her shot saying that nobody likes him and more or less that he doesn't get anything done, which, to be fair to Bernie Sanders, is the job of a senator is to not get anything done. Um, <laughs> and I would actually – the interesting thing to me about Sanders is I'd, I think he'd be a bad president, but he, Sanders has legit changed the tenor of the debate in this country. He has completely changed the way people talk about certain issues, particularly on the Democratic side. And so the idea that he hasn't gotten anything done is a bit misleading. He has gotten a huge amount done and that he has, he has moved the debate 100 yards to the left of where it was. And that's a lot, uh, even though he hasn't necessarily gotten bills passed. But is there, is her criticism good news for him? Is it helpful for him? I just think she is really misunderstanding her job right now. And I don't see any upside for her or for the country in this kind of intervention. Like her job is to be as statesmanlike and gracious and helpful to the Democrats as possible. And this is the opposite of that. And it makes this all about her, it returns us to the sniping and bitterness of 2016 in a way that I think raises fears that some voters are not over that or are just going to feel like, you know, the Democrats are just as at odds with each other and so like a pox on both their houses. I, I just really think this was unwise, like deeply unwise. So I don't really care whether the criticism of Bernie is like fair or not. It doesn't seem fair to me, really. I mean, it seems like it's very much through Hillary Clinton's own lens and prism, but I just mostly think like this is not the moment for her to be doing this. I was on the receiving end of a Bernie bro last weekend. I'd never been on the receiving <laughs> end of a Bernie bro before. How'd that, that go for you? It was That was quite an experience, but I need a story. So what, what was he doing that made him a Bernie bro as opposed to just a Bernie supporter? Oh, I was just using the term. It was a it was a young male. No, but like, was he being obnoxious? No, like, he's a perfectly, 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 okay. perfectly nice, uh, smart young person, truly. <laughs> but it was it was so it was so emphatic and and so like you know I turned left and I got hit in the face there and I turned right and then I got you know kicked in the shin and I walked out of the room and and it was still going on. Um, it was just the kind of the 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 flame the flame the burn. Uh, but I need one of you. I need a smarty pants like one of you to explain to me. 
is the Bernie Sanders theory that he expands the electorate or the Bernie bro theory that he expands the electorate and gets uh, and gets this whole new group of people who would otherwise not vote or would be, yeah, wouldn't vote or would be even maybe Trumpish. Is that a more or less compelling than the theory that he, he alienates all these people, namely suburban women, maybe who are disillusioned with Trump and his grossness, but, but do want a safe pair of hands. I mean, like, is it, is the theory, do we, do we have anything to show that once one theory is correct or not? John, I think the the closest you can get is if you is is the people who argue, look, the election's going to be figured out by or is going to be determined by three hundred thousand people in seven states, and those midwestern states tend to have a, a constituency that is susceptible or receptive to a candidate like Biden, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, then or then Bernie Sanders, both by the makeup of the electorate and then also the fact of the way Donald Trump will run the campaign. That um, that since this campaign will will certainly be defined by negative partisanship, the way the last campaign was defined by negative partisanship, that parsh that that people that the the largest fear that that he can conjure, he's going to do it no matter who the candidate is, and he'll largely use all the same attacks, socialism and open borders and crime and the things that will make people the most fearful. And what he's trying to do is make those suburban women the most fearful because if they've left him, they they might just not turn out. He needs to make them fearful enough to turn out in opposition to, and the argument goes that they would be more likely to be in opposition to uh, a Bernie Sanders than uh, to someone like a Joe Biden. Um, I mean, I think so that's what about the- trade and all of this, though? I mean, trade in those Midwestern states is really important, given all the jobs have been lost yeah. um, to, you know, that have gone offshore. And Biden actually has a bad record on trade from the point of view of people who feel like they've lost out um, from America's I- trade deals, whereas Bernie has a better record. I don't think there are 10 Americans who vote on trade. I really don't. I think nobody votes on trade. I think it is a, an issue that affects massive numbers of people. And it is, uh, you know, and trade policies are enormously important. But I actually don't think it is a voting issue for anybody. Because it doesn't, it doesn't have emotional valence in the same way that immigration seems to or abortion rights seems to. Um, Right. Well, it's, well issues, it's actually it's, maybe the best example of people voting their values instead of their class interest, right. which has become such a theme of American politics. Uh, right. I think if trade was ever going to play a role, it will play a role in this, this in this election. However, I generally subscribe to what David's saying. To the extent that people talk about trade, it's often um, a, a label they're sticking on something else, whether it's the inequities and the inequality in the system, because trade tends to be supported by you know employers who have stuff made overseas and and the American jobs suffer as a result, or just a general indifference to the working man and so forth. There's a lot of this locked up in values and identity um, that is disconnected from economic interest. Um, and so the idea that that people would be, moved just by the better articulation of an economic uh, interest argument is, um, I think, is not supported by a lot of the political science research. Let me make a case for Bernie, though, which is that he has this incredibly ardent support. Now, it hasn't grown enormously. It The big question is whether it could when Democrats have um, relied on the past on the notion of turning out voters who don't usually vote, i.e. young people and more Latino voters, that has failed them. And the demographics haven't shifted enough yet that it looks like it would be easy to change those margins. 
And yet there is this real core of enthusiasm. What I wonder about is the sort of um, toxic nature of some of the expression of that enthusiasm. So it's great to be for your candidate, but the demonizing in the last couple weeks of Elizabeth Warren, the attacking of, you know, other people who are lefty and liberal, but not like the diehard, true Bernie supporters, like that seems problematic to me because then you're just not you're not making people feel like welcome in a big tent. You're making it into this purity test. Hmm. I don't don't think that's about Bernie, by the way. And I don't think it characterizes a lot of his supporters, but it is true, you know, on Twitter, for example, which is not the world, but it also does relate to how journalists who are on Twitter a lot think about politics. uh, And I think we are likely to have invited some of it by the analysis we just (laughs) we just engaged in. I'm sure there is a there there is a there is a difference. It might be small, but there is a difference between um, between the way his supporters respond to things and the way other candidates supporters do. Um, And and that I mean, that's just that is the case. And it seems to me. And and, but what you say, Emily, is also true, which is that he has a, a a. group of people and supporters who represent just the kind of passion that he says will be transformative in the nation. I think the um, the the trick, though, and where it where it has a big hurdle is the that that has a ceiling. It has a ceiling not unlike President Trump's ceiling in the sense that it is deep and intense and really believes in him in a passionate way, but but that that's not that can't be transitioned to other people or that you can't just, you have to do another trick to get a, to, to grow that, that group of uh, supporters. And that's what you would need to affect the kind of change in the, in the math formula that he argues he's going to be able to use to get big things passed through Congress, which has created big, huge national revolution that'll put all this pressure on Washington. And that's where I think his, his argument has some, has some trouble. Um, so let, I want to, I want to close us out just quickly nodding at uh, two interesting candidates, one one seemingly sliding down, the other climbing up. Um, Mayor Pete does seem to be waning. And Mike Bloomberg, you, you know, he's got he's he's bought his way. He's one hundred and eighty million dollars of TV buy bought his way to decent support in national polls, although not in the early states. John, do you think that is is the Mayor Pete situation is he is is that now over? Is the Mayor Pete wave gone? Can we write him off and sort of start redistributing his people elsewhere? And where do they go? That's number one. And number two is is the is Bloomberg? Does it feel like Bloomberg actually is in a legit position to do something? Assuming that Sanders comes strong out of New Hampshire and Iowa, I think the Buttigieg problem is that he's got. Um, He's got Joe Biden in front of him. I mean, if it's an alternative between if you if you take the 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 slot that the Times, you know, the the two slots that the Times identified, which I think are right, then Buttigieg either has Biden or Klobuchar in front of him. Even though Klobuchar isn't the the showing up in the polls at all, but she is in the elite arguments. So he's getting, you know, he's 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 getting kind of pressure from two places. So, um, and he's got a problem which he hasn't been unable to solve um, uh, with the African-American community and fairly or unfairly, one of the things that, you know, happens in races is you get tagged with uh, with a problem and then it's your job to try and find a solution to that. And it, it may be 
uh, really hard and quirky and weird to do. But then again, so is the job that you're asking to be in. So um, he hasn't really solved that. So that that I think is a problem, both a real problem, but it's also a problem as people engage in punditry for the purposes of picking the most electable. They um, I think see weakness there. I'm not sure what to make of the Bloomberg thing, other than name ID. You know, matters a lot when people see a name and hear a name a lot. Um, you know, they you you tend to rise in the polls. I think his, um, you know, in a couple of future episodes, we'll talk about, uh, you know, is there really a path there if if uh, if the delegates get really split up in the first series of contests, um, does he get another look? Um, uh, I think one thing that I would just make a tiny little plea for is it was really, going back to the Times editorial briefly, when they talk about Elizabeth Warren on domestic affairs, they talk about her precision and understanding of the intricacies of how to get things um, accomplished on the domestic sphere, both through the administrative state and also through legislation. They have great, they put great power in, in her uh, talents. Then when it comes to um, foreign policy, they say um, that she you know, speaks eloquently. Okay, and then moves on to the next issue. So the balance of issues she's going to have to deal with are going to be more foreign than domestic. And just speaking eloquently about it would be like saying they, you know, the candidate speaks eloquently about uh, policy issues. You wouldn't stop there, domestic policy issues. You wouldn't stop there. You'd say, well, now we have to determine whether the Sanders approach is better or the Warren approach is better. And it's just funny the way in which foreign policy gets this mind trick that people go through. A corollary is the way in which debates, there, there are these long discussions about how are you going to pay for your plans to give Medicare for all or pre-college? How are you going to pay? How are you going to pay? How are you going to pay? And then in foreign policy, it's it's like how many troops and never the discussion about how you're going to pay for it. The, oh, the my God. I am so glad you are bringing this up. This is such a good point. One of the great speeches in American life was Eisenhower's uh, speech about the military-industrial complex. That was all about basically saying every gun we buy is food out of the mouths of a poor person. And he— and. That was his great legacy as he left office was saying you must think of these things in the same in the same breath and and however you want to come down on it you got to at least have a conversation and yet we we do this weird thing when it comes to foreign policy and so those are two examples of them I would like us to improve as we seek to um, build a better nation for ourselves and our children. Oh my God, let's end on that. Of course, Brilliant. we're going to end on that. Jeff Bezos uh, MBS phone hacking story is just. It's gasp-inducing. It's jaw-dropping. It is tongue-twisting. It's crazy. Every single bit of it is crazy. It's just – it is it is impossible to even think about it. I, I can't even – it's just – it's crazy. And it's not even clear if it's true. So that's also a whole other layer of it. The story, as alleged, is that it seems, perhaps, Jeff Bezos uh, had a private – or had dinner with – Mohammed bin, bin Salman, the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and uh, they exchanged WhatsApp messages. Ben Salman, MBS, later sent him, soon after sent him a video embedded in that video may have been malware, and that malware was used to then hack Bezos's phone and get information off Bezos's phone, which was then later channeled to the National Enquirer as a way to embarrass Bezos uh, by revealing an affair that he was having. All of this because Bezos owns the Washington Post. The Washington Post employed Jamal Khashoggi, who was a columnist who was very critical of MBS's regime, who MBS then had murdered in the embassy. And, you know, there's so many, there's lots more, <laughs> there's lots more 
going on. Wait, in this. you left out my favorite detail, oh, the creepiest part, which I have to say, which what? is that MBS, before months before the Inquirer broke the story about Bezos's affair, MBS texted Bezos a picture of a woman who looks a lot like Lauren Sanchez, the woman Bezos was having this affair with. Oh, my God, that is so weird. It's just it's insane. And so, okay, I want to make a few points just to start out. One is, uh, look, I know Amazon is a very problematic company, a lot of stuff it's doing wrong. God love Jeff Bezos for what he's done at the Washington Post and for his courage. And I, the thing that makes me sad is this, this is going to really not make any other rich billionaire type want to own a newspaper. going to think really hard about, about owning a newspaper. <laughs> Talk about unintended consequences. I mean, why would you want to own a newspaper? This is the kind of hot water you're going to end up in with your phone being hacked by some kind of dictator and your your private affairs being exposed. You're not going to want to do it. And so I, I just really give Bezos so much love and credit for doing being so supportive of the Post and so brave about it, it to the to great personal cost and financial cost because Amazon has clearly lost business as well. And and Bezos is also getting whacked by Trump on this. So so God love him for it. Um, Wait a second, though. Do we have to note in some way that like maybe it's not such a good idea to hang out with MBS and give him your cell phone number and open the video that he sent you? Like that although, doesn't did seem he, like. Actually, I think one of the complicating things here is that it the times made it seem like it wasn't clear whether he'd actually opened the video or not oh uh, it just appeared just to well, give you a sense of how freaked out we all should be about cyber sleuthing um okay well yeah. i suppose that yes that makes but i mean come on like this is a little like mbs is not a good person to hang out with like that doesn't seem sure. like it should have been so hard to figure out well, like maybe not the most trustworthy person. Maybe don't give him your personal cell phone number. Why are you having dinner with him in the first place? I wonder if this makes if this so so in a way when you're a rich person you're you live in a world of your peers, right? And and killing having a Washington Post columnist dismembered at your order in an embassy is like a, not a good thing to do. But your peers basically are being like that's cool, it's okay. We you've still got billions of dollars. We should still do some business together. But if if people who are in ostensibly kind of friendly, casual, personal relationship with MBS discover that he's hacking them and stealing data from their phone and can't be trusted, I think that's a much worse situation for him to find himself in than to actually go around murdering dissidents and, and shutting down uh, all dissent in Saudi Arabia. And, and, and it's actually going to be much more costly for him. This story is going to be much more costly for him than murdering Khashoggi was because it's going to make his peers not want to deal with him. Whereas before his peers were like, yeah, you know, the murdering not great, but still. So that's my hope. That's a terrifyingly <laughs> cold-blooded yeah. point to be making. I mean, let's just think about that for a second. I, I see your point and it's deeply disturbing. Actually, I was thinking about this in the in the so I in college, and this is so far back in the deep the deep recesses of my brain, and it's also so far back in history that probably none of it's true anymore. But I remember reading sociologists like C. Wright Mills, who studied power elites, and so much of what regulates people's behavior is not actually rules; it's not actually laws. It is peer expectation and peer, you know, it's peer norms. That's the greater constraint. And so if you look in the 50s, why is it that CEOs in the 50s were paid so much less than CEOs are paid today? Because the norms were that you didn't 
get paid that much. And once the norms get lifted, people are like, oh, good, I can do whatever I want. And that if you are a really bad person, like you are often shunned and shamed. And if, when you have a society where shamelessness is rewarded, it becomes really, really hard to regulate people's behavior. That the kind of the 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 tribal uh, the 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 sort of peer regulating effects get diminished if shamelessness is rewarded. And I and I think one of the things, the worst things about Trump and Putin and and BS and some of the other things is that it's that it's allowed it's allowed that behavior which used to be derided and 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 you couldn't it was it like forced people to be hypocrites like it forced you like people had to at least in public pretend to believe in certain things but now they don't even have to anymore they they just mm -hmm. they there's no such thing as polite society the the peer regulating function has failed and it's failing at the level clearly it's failing at the level of billionaire buddies and it's failing at the level of nation states too where the dictators think they can get away with it because People like Trump and the United States, which used to try to shame bad behavior, has stopped trying to do it. And we want to live in a world where where people feel a sense of shame and where you have where there is polite society. Like polite society is good. Polite society isn't just papering over viciousness. Polite society tamps down viciousness. Right. And that even that's I thought there was an interesting moment in Schiff's uh, opening argument where he talked about the frame that it his argument was if you buy the way in which Donald Trump does business, it separates the world basically into autocrats and hypocrites. And that basically any country that's not an autocrat is just pretending it's not, but in fact has autocratic behavior. Um, and that's what you're talking about, David, is that there are, even if as a country you have had instances in which you've played footsie with autocracy, you nevertheless maintain these norms as a country, as president, as and you maintain them in your regular life that are not 100% perfection. They have slips, but that basically you may try to maintain them anyway because once you drop them, everybody drops everything across the board. And that's the that's the unintended um, uh, thing. It's hard, super hard to measure with a president who, I mean, it's not, it's not a question that Donald Trump, he, he builds his presidency on burning norms. Um, and that's why I thought it was also funny that John Roberts made his interjection into the impeachment saying, you know, telling both sides to... Um, to reach for a higher level of play because they were speaking in the highest in in front of the world's greatest deliberative body, which is funny since some of the members of the world's greatest deliberative body had said that they were going to refuse to deliberate and were in fact going to quit uh, quit the president. So, um, uh, but I think that's all of the uh, all a part of the same piece. Do you guys assume that one day we're going to discover all the hacks that have been done of Trump's phone and all? all that stuff is going to get released somehow or or that it's in fact he's it's being used against us as a nation or against him already because if bezos is being hacked then then trump who i suspect is a lot more careless than bezos is is probably also being hacked and don a, jr right and jared kushner like folks who really kushner, hang yes. out with mbs my favorite thing said on Twitter uh, this week was the Saudi embassy put out a tweet that said, recent media reports that suggest the kingdom is behind a hacking of Mr. Jeff Bezos' phone are absurd. We call for an investigation on these claims so that we can have all the facts out. And Jake Tapper embedded that in a tweet. He said, great idea. There was a respected Washington Post columnist who I would love to have investigate the matter, but you killed him. <laughs> yeah. Oof. There's an MBS-like character on the HBO show Succession. And now... 
MBS has outdone, far outdone whatever Succession had him doing. I th- yeah. Th- this is a t- completely minor point, but I actually one of my fears about this this uh, this scandal is that it's going to kill the show Succession in the way that that the Trump presidency killed both Veep and House of Cards because Veep and House of Cards suddenly didn't seem they didn't seem ridiculous anymore. They didn't they weren't outlandish enough. They seemed prescient. They, they seemed prescient and then and then ultimately boring because you're like, oh, actually reality is much, much weirder and more terrible than even these shows are showing. And I feel like the world the world is too the world is too too terribly interesting. Uh, and fiction is being destroyed by it. I'm glad that it's your television show that you're the most protective of in this scenario of like, who knows what else MBS has in secrets from all these different important people. Let's worry about succession. Isn't it also terrible, Emily, as a as uh, as a Jew, I feel this, that that it seems to be Israeli companies that are behind the the malevolent hacking software. It is indeed terrible. I think there's also an Italian company. I notice that because I cringe every time I see those Israeli companies referenced. But yes. The Italian company had that really funny name. It was called like the Italian Hacking Company. Officially known as the Italian Hacking Team. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. Uh, Anyway. Let's move to Cocktail Chatter. When you are having a non-alcoholic cocktail with MBS and he is is, um, getting your phone number and preparing to send you very funny gifts that you guys are going to share and memes that you're going to share with each other. Isn't that exciting? What are you going to be chattering about with him, Emily? I was mesmerized this week by a kind of sleeper Supreme Court case involving the circumstances in which states can or even perhaps must provide funding to religious schools. It's a case called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. And the facts in the case are that Montana had a tax rebate program where you could donate money for a scholarship to a private school. They included religious schools in the tax rebate. And these are like, you know, evangelical schools, like places that, you know, don't teach evolution or whatever. And then somebody sued and said, wait a second, this is against Montana's own constitution because it the Montana constitution has in it a no aid to a religious schools provision. Um, these are called Blaine Amendments. And so then the Montana Supreme Court struck down the funding, not just of the religious schools, but they actually struck down the whole program. They were like, nope. Um, can't do this. And so this lawsuit in front of the Supreme Court is brought by the mother of children who could have been eligible for a scholarship but did not receive one, not someone who actually had a scholarship taken away. And this is like deeply profound questions about whether religious organizations, including schools, are being discriminated against when they don't receive federal funding or state funding, I should say, or whether this is like a necessary and wise application of the Establishment Clause where you don't want the state funding religion. In fact, indeed, the state is not supposed to be playing this role. The court has these kind of dueling precedents right now. Last year, they said that a religious school had to be eligible for a funding program in a state that was paying for renovating playground equipment. And so the idea was, and there, and Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion, he was pretty clear in a footnote, like, okay, we're talking, I thought it was clear that we're talking about funding for religious schools that goes to non-religious purposes. 
On the other hand, there's an earlier decision from um, Chief Justice Rehnquist that was seven to two in which there was a state funding program for scholarships for, I think, graduate school. Someone applied who wanted to go to seminary to be a minister and said he was being discriminated against. And the Supreme Court said, no, you're not being discriminated against because this isn't about who you are. It's about what you want to do. And the state doesn't have to fund actual like preparing someone to play a religious role, actual funding of religious teaching. So now the court presumably is going to move toward the playground case. Kavanaugh, who's, you know, one of the new justices, made it clear, I thought, um, at argument this week that that was the direction he was heading in. It's sort of a baffling case because I can't figure out the remedy is. The state got rid of the entire program. So the court's going to say, like, what exactly? Like, if you have a tax rebate for private schools, then you have to include religious schools. Are they going to force the state to revive this program. And then the last part of this that really interests me is that Blaine amendments have a bad history. They kind of came out of anti-Catholic bigoted sentiment in the late 19th century. And this is something that Kavanaugh pointed to in our, early, in our oral argument. It's come up in a case that I'm following really closely about whether states should be allowed to maintain split jury verdicts. Those state constitutional amendments have their own terrible bigoted history. Um, they're rooted in white supremacy in Louisiana and anti-Semitism and anti-immigrant sentiment in Oregon. And so I, Kavanaugh said something in the jury case about the racist origins of Louis, Louisiana's jury law. And now he's talking about bigotry in Oregon. And I can't help thinking that, like, yes, there is a connection. And also, he was setting up a connection there. So anyway, there are all these interesting issues swirling around. And, you know, at base, this big question about whether states not only can fund religious schools for non-religious um, purposes, but would have to fund religious schools for religious teachings. That's a step we haven't seen yet. And it would be really a big change. Jesus, as we say. Um, John, what's your chatter? So the 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 Blaine Amendment, by the way, is um, named after James G. Blaine, who ran against Cleveland in um, 1884. There's a fascinating story about the Catholic vote in New York and what happened in that race, in addition to an amazing story about um, letters that were written by Blaine, known as the Mulligan Letters. So that Catholic part of the reason he proposed that amendment is really um, is really interesting because it um, essentially ends up costing him the presidency in 1884, some people think. So, John, when I said Blaine Amendments, do you, did you automatically think, oh, yeah, those anti-Catholic laws? Well, I thought, huh, is that the same Blaine as James G. Blaine, the, the continental liar from the state of Maine? Um, and so... Uh, I looked it up, and then when you mentioned Catholics, it reminded me of the at the very end of his campaign. I don't want to give it away, but there is a Catholic event that takes place that ends up hurting him in New York, which was essentially the swing state of of the time. Ends up, you know, some people thinking it kills him in the, in New York, and therefore he loses the election to Cleveland. James G. Blaine is a fascinating cat, and I recommend anybody who wants to go into an obscure corner of American history. To um, to go spend some time with Blaine, the Burchard but is the guy who uttered rum, Romanism, and rebellion, and it wasn't even Blaine was just on the stage, and Burchard, who is a pre Presbyterian uh, minister, talked about rum, Romanism, and rebellion, and obviously Romanism is the idea that the Pope controls everything, and this in Catholic New York was seen as a slur against the Catholics, and Blaine couldn't recoup because he didn't stand up and and denounce this, he couldn't recoup among Catholic voters, and that, people say, hurt him in New York. John, um, do you have a chatter? 
Yeah, sorry, I went on about James G. Blaine, but um, I have a, a chatter that's in uh, that's both uh, frivolous and then serious, and I'll start uh, with the serious ones. The president was asked about the fact that they found additional injuries as a result of the um, attack on Soleimani a few weeks ago, and he said, "Well, I, they had some headaches, and you know, it wasn't a big deal." And it just strikes me as there are big ways and little ways in which the president is changing things. Um, and I, I recall that one of the biggest problems that the military deals with is concussions and traumatic brain injury. And that, in fact, it's it's one of the legacies of recent warfare. There have been hundreds of thousands of these cases, and it's a serious issue for the military. And one of the problems is that people who have traumatic brain injury feel a kind of embarrassment because it's not a, you know, it's not something you can necessarily see. And the military has been working to try to fix that. Um, And so you could imagine a different president being asked about the fact that they subsequently um, found out there were brain injuries as a result of the attack on the U.S. base in Iraq that was in um, retaliation for the Soleimani attack and say, you know, we didn't know at first. Uh, They're not physical uh, wounds of the kind you might know about, but they are nevertheless a super important and crucial kind of injury that that we're more worried about than ever. And this is, you know, you're just taking it into a direction that actually shined light on it instead of what the president did, which is basically say these aren't, these injuries weren't very serious, kind of exacerbating the, uh, the underlying problem about traumatic brain injury. Two other things. One is that Terry Jones of Monty Python died this week and much of my childhood and happiness in life is related to his work so may he rest in peace and also there is one of the maybe the most amazing act of um sports i've ever seen which is a um uh you'll see it online if you haven't already we'll put it on our web page which is a uh, fellow whose name i don't even know playing bocce and he rolls the <laughs> ball. That, yeah. Did you see it? <laughs> yeah. I mean uh, and so it got me thinking what is the greatest and w- and then you have to figure out your terms what you mean the greatest shot in sports because he uh, anyway that would be it seems to me in the top five um, uh, it's quite extraordinary so I I suggest people go look for it. Um, <laughs> that's funny. All right, my chatter. Uh, just a couple of quickies. One is uh, if you have a child and you are looking for something to do with a child and you live in a city, I got a recommendation for you. My son is interested in buses, and we rode one of D.C.'s longest bus routes from start to finish this week. What a great way to spend a couple of hours. I cannot recommend that highly enough as a way of just relaxing, having spending some time with a child, and seeing the city you live in from a new perspective and seeing parts of it you haven't seen before. It's great. Buses are, I, I, as a form of public transportation, I find buses tricky because they're they they don't serve the need that i have most of the time but as a form of transportation overall your bike i would rather get on my bike and or and metro is just generally the subterranean is generally quicker and you're less beholden to traffic but as a way of just kind of exploring a city oh so good so we rode the 96 bus route in dc great bus route to ride but I'm sure there are lots of other ones in your city or in D.C. that you could ride. And then I want to quickly follow up on my iPhone speculation. A lot of you uh, enjoyed us talking about severed digits, whether it was the sour toe cocktail or the the uh, fingerprint function of an, the iPhone at the Pensacola shooter and why they couldn't exhume him 
the Pensacola shooter and use fingerprint to unlock the phone. And several, many people pointed out that an iPhone, uh, you can't, you just can't use a fingerprint in a lot of circumstances, including if the phone has been rebooted, if it's been off, if it's been, there've been five unsuccessful unlock attempts, or it's more than 48 hours since you tried to open it. So that would, those would all be reasons why the fingerprint functionality might not work. Thanks for the, all the fingerprint advice, y'all. And of course, we've gotten great listener chatter. You have sent them to us by tweeting them to us at, at @slategabfest. Uh, and this week's listener chatter comes from George Garner at out at Mouse Ion Guy. George Garner is retweeting CRHC, and I'm sorry to say I didn't look up what CRHC is before I came here. But it's a it's a story from uh, a, looks to be a South Florida public radio station or t- public TV station about the African-American cemeteries in the South that are being built over because they are lost to history, that people have forgotten that there are cemeteries there. And and there's example after example after example of cemeteries that were for African-Americans, some from slave times, more post-slavery, that are just being built over. And now there's an effort to try to preserve them. Uh, And it's not just in the South, actually. It's all, all over the country. And so it's a nice story about the effort to preserve them. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Melissa Kaplan helped me here in D.C. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Alan Pang, I think, is back and is helping John because I think thought I heard Alan's voice earlier. Yes, indeed. Ryan McAvoy is undoubtedly helping Emily, that fine New Haven studio. He is. Gabe Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet some chatter at us. I think we're going to be announcing some live shows soon. We don't have any. I have nothing to announce, but I feel like. I want to announce that we might announce that because that'll just get everybody excited. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Potts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Slate Plus, it's Thursday. And perhaps in your religion, Thursday is a holy day. Perhaps Thursday is a day of rest. Maybe it's the Sabbath. Maybe Thursday is a day when you have to work extra hard in your religion. If you were designing religion, maybe Thursday would have sacred value. I think Thursday would be a good day to have sacred value. I love Thursdays. Great day. Um, in any case, Emily, you tee this up because this came from one of your bright children. <laughs> As opposed to my non-bright Possibly you have um, other yeah. non-bright children I haven't met yet. My son Simon goes to a youth group on Sundays, and they always have great discussion questions. And this was their discussion question from last week. Is it so a socialist youth group? my answer to this – it's not actually – I don't think it's socialist. Oh. It's like, Youth group is a weird um, phrase. I've never – like. I know. I don't really know what else to call it, though. It's kind of great. It's like pulls in kids from um, all over the city. It's met at various churches in our neighborhood. Um, I'm, I'm into it. Or I've never gone, but I like the idea of it. That Simon conveys. Anyway, uh, here's what I want from my religion that I'm creating: preserving the planet. Wait, wait, like wait! Can you frame lofty... the question? Frame the question. You didn't even say what the question. Oh, I didn't frame no. the question. Sorry. Okay, let them back up. Three, two, one. So the question is: If you were creating a religion, what elements would it have in it? What do you? What would you prioritize? Is there God? What's the point? Um, what are you um, making your religion or your cult around? David, do you want to tell us the answer? Oh, I have to start. Your answer? Well, it sort of depends why you're doing it. Are you doing it for right. are you doing this because you're trying to make money or is this like is this a 
a move where you think you're no, going to gull people. No, that's not why people start religions, or it's not why they're well, supposed to start L. religions. Hubbard, Can we imagine L. Ron, a more exalted? L. Ron Hubbard had, did it in a kind of cynical way, as I understand from the early yeah, days of Scientology. Yeah, I don't want this to become other people like do it because Scientology. Other people do it because they have genuine religious revelation. So there's like something that deeply, they don't start a religion out of calculation. They started because they've had some moment of transcendence or some experience that that makes them believe that they've been chosen by God or they've had an, a, a revelation with a higher power. And so it's not it's not calculating. Okay. So it's like the, <laughs> the idea that it's calculated is weird. But if I were calculating, if it were me and I were calculating, I think it would be uh, it would just it would have to involve some kind of natural cathedrals. Like I would it would just be something you would be experience in awe inspiring natural landscapes would be the, the core worship experience. But beyond that, I don't know. So that's that's all I, that's as far as I got. Well, mine relates to your sort of, I guess I'm imagining a world in which you could like decide to have a revelation or just decide what you think religion could be very useful for on our planet that we need. And I think what we need is like a galvanizing moral and religious um, purpose in preserving the planet in environmental custodianship and making sure that our mother earth remains with us. And because it's such a hard problem to tackle, it's so long-term, we feel defeated in many ways about it. Having religious fervor and purpose and uh, determination behind this cause, I think would be incredibly helpful. So that would be what I would make my religion around. So here's the question related to that. How do you affect that? Because so do you say basically you will be doomed to perdition forever if you don't save the planet? Do you make people feel obligated for the uh, other people on the planet as a, as a part of their um, faith tradition and therefore they want to save those other people from burning into a crisp? Do you make people's afterlife um, connected to the future of the planet long after they're gone? How do you, what's the psychological motivation that um, makes your religion achieve the end you want? That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 